Alrighty, welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Uh, Adam, have you made your Blue Monday preparations yet? Get like some blue menu maybe and... No, no, I've been I've been too busy this week uh, with the, the book smirks. launch. Yeah, no, time, no time to be blue. Well, that's good. That's good. No, no. See, I, I had a book launch this week uh, where I was complaining about how I was born rich and privileged and, <laughs> and desired and how, you know, that's that's like super hard. You know, that's, you know, I, I can't believe no one feels sorry for me. That's anyway. That, 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 you must have just done it on Insta because I, I didn't see it. So. <laughs> I've been on Insta since this afternoon when I saw that Mayor Guthrie recorded his uh, weekly council recap upside down. But uh, maybe that's a story. <laughs> maybe that's a story for another time. Go national. Oh, so maybe. We'll see it on the BBC tomorrow morning. I'm looking forward uh, to it. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Open Sources is CFU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians. And that, and uh, this week, it will be the Executive Director of Environmental Defense, Tim Gray, who is going to tell us about taking the Ford government to court, fighting for the Green Belt and other environmental issues in the province right now and how difficult it is to get traction on some of those numerous issues which we have talked about over the last several weeks. That is going to be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including rich Canadian CEOs. They only make 243 times as much money as the average Canadian worker. So why are we picking on these tremendous job creators? But first, uh, everyone loves a sequel, and uh, there was a little (laughs) sequel in in Brazil, uh, not as good as the original, uh, but when is it ever? Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, no. Uh, there was uh, maybe not an attempt- attempted coup, let's say, but there was definitely a riot uh, in Brasilia, which is the capital city of Brasil, uh, in the uh, the Trey Ponderes Plaza, which is the place in Brasilia where they have the Supreme Court, the legislature, and the presidential palace, all conveniently in one place. Uh, extra convenient if you want to uh, barge in, destroy priceless artwork, uh, tear the place up, set stuff on fire, as a big group of pro-Jair Bolsonaro uh, activists did on Sunday. Uh because it was Sunday, there was not much going on. Legislators weren't there. The current president, and I want to say his whole name, just, uh, I don't want to, I just want to go with Lula. Uh, Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, he was not in town at the time. Uh, but still, it, it is kind of uh, sketchy that, you know, a lot of the people behind the January 6th insurrection were behind this January 8th insurrection in brazil so we're talking about steve bannon uh jason miller uh one of the peons who uh supported donald trump to the bitter end is also apparently in touch with Janeiro bolsonaro a lot of people because bolsonaro's in florida right now ostensibly getting medical treatment occasionally out eating kfc um but uh <laughs> a lot of people are saying he needed an alibi and uh <laughs> this is why so um yeah a lot to worry about this is kind of uh that you know we get january 6 part two 
and uh, a lot of the same players are involved. It's almost like they didn't learn a lesson. <laughs> yeah, there's some key differences too. Interestingly, Bolsonaro tweeting out that he didn't he disapproved of what was going on, but uh, that doesn't cancel out all the other stuff that led up to it. Mm. And also, I guess not recently, but he was parroting the whole election stolen, the machines are rigged mm-hmm. narrative, which interestingly, somebody found or was mentioned that back in the 90s when he was just a mere legislator from somewhere, that he was one of the main advocates to get the system changed from paper ballots to digital ones. <laughs> so this was something that he advocated for 30 years ago. But of course, now that it's not working in his favor, mm-hmm. those rig machines. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I did see a clip with, oh, who was this? it? was Bannon and my pillow guy. Yeah, Mike Lindell. His name I can never remember. And it doesn't matter in my <laughs> world. Bannon saying, oh, you're going to go down there. You got your people, your people going to go down there and tell them all about the machines. It's like, does the MyPillow guy have a scientist background as well or statistics or something? No. So, uh, yeah. He, it's, he has a using crack background. Oh, okay. Well, that, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that helps with the numbers. Probably not. But yeah, so it was it was it was weird. Not unlike uh, January sixth was. But it was all pre planned. It sounds like they're laying a lot of the blame out on social media, of course, as we do in this universe. But it it does sound like the whole thing was hatched on the socials, and they're using slightly coded language. We're gonna go to a party. <clears throat> Just mm-hmm. happens to involve some smashing of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was anarchists, they probably would have shot them all, but you know, it wasn't. They did round a bunch of people up and they think hold them for what a month or something like that until they mm-hmm. can. So it sounds like there's, I'm, I can't remember the exact numbers, it was increasing, uh, probably more so than on January 6th. They had to kind of backwards engineer finding people, but yeah, sounds like they. I don't know if it's because of the design of, of Brasilia, which is this weird postmodern purpose-built place, and that's why everything is in the one place. It did it did have a sci-fi quality to it. <laughs> it reminded me of all those movies in the 60s and 70s where they would just use the, you know, something that was just built and it looked futuristic, like Clockwork Orange and that, right? But anyway, mm. a little bit of a side there, but it's it it, you know, strange but yet strangely familiar as well. Yeah, and the whole thing with um, the communicating on social media, apparently, I mean, you can take the mickey out of social media, but the fact of the matter is, among other things that he's done lately, apparently, uh, Elon Musk disbanded, by and large, like the entire sort of safety team uh, for Twitter that oversees, you know, Brazilian Twitter. So like nobody was watching the store and surprise, surprise, everybody came in and looted the place. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there has been a relaxing too. And interestingly, to bring this back to January 6th for a minute, Ali Alexander, one of the organizers of Stop the Steal, Musk reinstates him on January 6th. So there's there's a lot of blame to go around. Like Facebook has been loosening the the, the grips on some of the these disinformation things, not as severely as Elon, but still not great. And YouTube's been doing it as well. So there is a lot of blame to go around on the social. The money thing, the money thing is what's going to be interesting because um, they're reporting that something like you know millions of dollars from ten different Brazilian states, including. 
people from the agribusiness sector. Um, mm. There's there's nothing sort of there's been no sort of evidence posted. This is something that somebody told the Washington Post that they tied like transfers to ten different states, including um, businesses in the agri sector. Of course, where Bolsonaro was huge for because he had no care about preserving the rainforest and mm-hmm. you know letting it be plowed over for pasture fields for soybeans, yeah. Or ranchers. Um, Mm. (laughs) Interesting this week, we get the whole thing about uh, natural gas ranges that, you know, this White House report, you know, the the gas ranges are uh, have extra pollution. And, you know, you have Republican Congress people like saying, come take my range out of my gold dead hands. And but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, Yeah. So the money is the big issue because there are also these big camps in front of like army headquarters um you know you, you mentioned like if they're anarchists they'd be shot well if these were like homeless people like some of the the 10 cities we get they would absolutely be cleared out as well but since they're good patriotic brazilian citizens they were largely left alone and there are people who'd get like tours of these facilities and they'd be um you know they'd have cooking stations and they'd seem to have a lot of resources which is weird because everybody was like camped out on this site for weeks so like where are they getting the money from it's got to be coming from in from somewhere so there's there's a lot of this a lot of this shades of the trucker thing as well and actually there was a a trucker general strike in october shortly after the lulu was elected and that kind of went nowhere and so it's it it everything that's happened in brazil when you kind of like dig deeper into the last couple of months it seems like the greatest hits of like far right protesting. And of course it all sort of, you know, led to this January 6th style insurrection um, <laughs> in Brasilia. So it, it, it you know, it's, <laughs> they tried everything um, including all the stuff that's been tried before. And it's, it's kind of, kind of creepy, kind of creepy. Yeah. Like a protest an AI would come up with or something here. Here's, here's just bunch all those things together. I remember that trucker protest in the fall there early winter because mm. it had Canadian flags and Dutch flags like you see here as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they just merged all these ideas together. It's like this Can-Am, you know, take take some January 6th and add a little bit of Ottawa. <laughs> Although comparatively, Ottawa was it, it was shenanigans, but it wasn't quite this level. This reminds me of that when you'd hear about students moving out and they wanted to screw the landlord. So they would just smash the place and do ridiculous things like leave the fridge open and yeah, throw the mattress into the yard. It's more, it's more like that because there's, there's no, you know, Brazil is a place that knows coup that knows you know, military um, running the place. So it's, it's not as if it was like that, although it's, it sounds like, and I just saw it before airtime. So I'm going to not, completely accurately remember but chief of police in brazilia maybe or the chief of the military division uh arrested or charged or rounded up in this too because it was like he didn't do enough i mean he's, he's not uh you know ottawa police chief by any means this is this is far different level of of destruction and whatnot um, mm. but it sounds like they're, they're they're going to the top to find out who did it and it, adding to that too when you were saying about who bankrolled it supposedly these invitations that went out online it's like oh just come there'll be a bus and there'll be coffee and food and don't worry about it it's like that all costs right you're getting five thousand people together uh there's it, it you know he can't just i guess you could crowdfund that but this sounded more like oh no it's all ready to go just come we just need you and yeah, interestingly so- something else i noticed too they're all wearing pele shirts and like pele who just died recently i mean he never would have gone in for that i don't know if it's just to try and 
you know, state the fact that you're Brazilian and need needed to wear yellow. Because at first when I saw it, I wasn't sure I was. I'm like, is it the yellow vest back? Like, is it yellow vest, yellow? <laughs> Which would be other greatest jersey? hits, yeah. <laughs> but there and there are some aspects of yellow vest protests to this as well. So they just took everything and made a big merger and smashy. Well, it's it's hard to think of anyone who's like bigger in Brazil or out of it who is Brazilian than Pele. So it makes sense they would kind of like adopt him as some as like a kind of nationalist symbol, which yeah, you know, was, you're right, is he would he he would have no truck for that, so to speak. Um, I was trying to remember even though he's a, a Trump supporter, I'm sure Gretzky wouldn't appreciate a bunch of ninety nine jerseys in Ottawa <laughs> or Winnipeg or wherever the heck they're gonna be next. I don't know. Hey, hey, uh online gambling money covers a multitude of sins. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> literally and figuratively uh <laughs> but yeah no it, it's wh- what i do appreciate about what's happening in brazil is that they do seem to be moving i did look up this arrest um you're talking about brasilia's former public security chief anderson torres was um arrested um this is coming from the attorney general's office uh colonel fabio augusto the police commander um was dismissed from his role um as well so there's a couple of different levels here um and then you know blessedly they did decide to arrest people on the spot they arrest uh, they're varying different estimates like 200 to 400 people and then they went into the camps uh the next day and rounded up another 1500 so on on the one hand it, it does seem like pro-democracy forces have kind of learned a lesson too but there is also a key difference in brazil that i've seen a number of people point out which is that uh you know these are people who remember what it's like to live under a military dictatorship for 20 years and mm-hmm. you know so th- this is kind of r- still relatively new history as opposed to someplace like the united states where nobody a lot nobody alive now knows what it's like to have like a coup from the inside try and and seize power but you know it's also a double-edged sword too because you have people in brazil like bolsonaro who remember the good old days in his mind of military military dictatorship and put a lot of military people in charge uh in his cabinet but then you also have the flip side of people who remember it as a bad thing and are are willing to stand up against it too so that's an interesting brazilian dynamic here oh yeah and he he didn't hang around a hand over the sash knowing full well that he probably would have been rounded up himself although and it's probably good that he got out of the way because the riot might have gone uh next level if they had you know he hands over the sash and then they card him away or slap cuffs on them or something but uh, interestingly i heard a professor i can't remember where it was brazilian professor saying well it was a they played back something that he had said a couple of years ago after january 6th and he's like oh yeah this this will happen in brazil <laughs> he predicted it like almost oh, not to the day though their inauguration day is, is january 1st mm-hmm. but he said if if and when bolsonaro goes this is going to happen and mm-hmm. here's why and the main thing was that this symbiotic relationship as he called it between uh trump and bolsonaro who supposedly had a meeting not surprising there's no record of it but maralaro's uh <laughs> you know everyone's a florida man these days it <laughs> that's true that's true not uh, us but yeah. no i haven't been caught dead in florida i've never been have you been there ever no i oh you haven't okay i thought no, i was the only canadian no I, naturalized I, I, canadian who's never been there i i have watched a lot of csi miami though 
Oh yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> go for the heat, stay for the Crocs. I don't know. I'm pretty sure they have alligators in Florida, not Crocs. Yeah, see, that shows you how much I know. Zero. All right, moving on. Uh, if you were at work around ten o'clock on January the third, uh, and you have a boss who's sort of like CEO of the corporation you work for, uh, he officially made as much money for uh, that you will make all year um, by that time. Um, so that was one of the revelations in this report from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Um, and I believe they do point out, put out something like this every year about how much the 100 highest paid CEOs in Canada make as opposed to um, the people who work for them. Uh, in 2021, which was the most recent numbers, 243 is the difference. Uh, the uh, 100 highest paid CEOs make 243 times as much as the workers who cash the paychecks from those CEOs. Um, that's an increase from 227 times in 2018, uh, although that is a difference in sort of real money, 11.8 million for the average CEO in 2018, 14.3 million in uh, 2021 dollars. Um, interestingly, and it, I made this point in my Guelph Today thing uh, last weekend that, you know, this comes in the exact same week we get the scandal of the $37 premium <laughs> chicken in quote marks. So uh, it just, it just goes to show that there's probably a real connection between, you know, all this executive pay that is just keeps going up and up and up and the prices you're paying at the grocery store. And we, we want to highlight that just because like, it, it seems like we're going out of our way not to make that connection that, you know, when executive pays like 243 times what the average worker pays. And then we look at the chicken and that costs $37. <laughs> and then we don't seem to, you know, draw two and two together that Galen Weston, despite uh, you know, the, the, the hokey father knows best blah blahs ads that uh, uh, he's actually a rich. He's a, he's actually a pretty rich bitch is what I'm saying. <laughs> Nepo baby. Yeah. <laughs> also trending. I mean, that's exactly what is it? Grandfather or great grandfather. The Westons uh, have been around for a long time. The yep. oligarchs or the <laughs> plutocrats. I don't know. You name it. But yeah, this, th I don't get mad at this report anymore. I used to, but it's designed to get a reaction out of people like me. Uh, <laughs> that's why it's, most, on, that's why it's most, on the working people. Right. But there's, there's, Little you can do about it, right? It's not like they're going to drag the guillotine out anytime soon. No. This is the counterpoint, and I'm not sure if this is what brought it about uh, to the Tax Freedom Day, which also gets, I think people get more enraged about that, right? That's the right-wing version of this report. What is it? Fraser Institute. This is like CCPA versus Fraser Institute. So they're first out of the gate with, the CEOs make this one right, and everybody goes, wah! And then Tax Freedom Day, you pay taxes until this day, which, eh, sort of true. <laughs> Everybody goes, wow. Um, but yeah, we know the Westons are what? Eight billion? Like he he's the Almost exception nine. rather than... What's that? Nine? Okay. Almost nine. nine there yeah. you go. It increased that much since I made the note. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, they're, he, they're next level. And he's brave to put himself out there with those stupid, stupid ads. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, pays the bills, I guess, right? Pays for the... Pays for the they have a place in Florida too. In fact, is it not near Trump? I believe so. I'm sure it's probably a little classier design because Hillary Weston, as we know, um, mm -hmm. ex-Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. 
this is all and i always go here and i think you probably knew i was going to go there the connect the dots thing between weston's lieutenant governor influence the fact that uh doug ford's announcement today his first press conference out of the gate since the long holiday began Mm -hmm. was that it was a shoppers right have i got that right Mm -hmm. this morning and well, which, where, is, where else is he going to go? Well, to to reannounce the the ability for the pharmacy to diagnose certain things and extend your prescription for a fee, right? Mm-hmm. For a fee. Mm-hmm. So it, it, to, to me, this is all that that's the story is that it's all related, and it, it does directly speak to the thirty seven dollar chicken. Although uh, I believe Siobhan Morris had to backtrack a bit because she didn't see the teeny tiny thing that indicated that it was premium. Normally, they have these classy labels. <laughs> I guess cost money as well, right? But it's I like these designations are always it's, it's something that Loblaw made up, right? It's not it's not a certification like organic. People don't well, know this. Maggie, I've said it before, but it's like this, some of these things they say are are meaningless because you can't back it up. Right? Well, I'm not sure how much she, Siobhan Morris had to backtrack because that that was like the excuse of like the the Agra Food Lab at Dalhousie. It was like, well, it is a premium product, skinless, boneless, and it's just like. And I, again, I said this in my Guelph Today thing. It's just, you know, it's it's the only time in history everyone anyone's ever referred to chicken as a premium product. Chicken's not a, you know, no matter who's skinning it and who's deboning it, it, it chicken is not typically thought of as a premium product, which is just kind of absurd. But yeah, the, the whole thing is, yeah, there is an ecosystem out there that seems to be rewarding people who have all the money. And uh, you mentioned the Fraser Institute. And, you know, they've kind of, I, I don't think they've done it lately, but they used to put out like their own press release uh, when c- the CCPA would put out their thing. It's like, well, don't you know, CEOs are paid such a high wage because they have to have specific skills. They have to turn a profit. And it's like, well, what you're saying, <laughs> you know, what you're saying is true, but how are they turning up the profit? I mean, not to pick on I was going to say Port Galen Weston, but that's 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 a poor choice oh, of words. No. But you know, not to pick on Galen Weston, but you know, just how much of, um, you, you know, would it make a difference if they'd made a million dollars less this year and instead, you know, made sure to keep prices low? Because the whole thing about that chicken too was like apparently they got, you know, uh, from the supplier like. Because there's a, there's a whole continuum of things that like comes from the farm, you pay a price of the farm, then you add another markup to put it down on the shelf, and I can't I couldn't find the figure for the life of me, but it was like it was like a super low figure for them to acquire the chicken, and then by the time it gets to the Loblaws shelf, it's thirty seven dollars. So there's clearly price gouging, and it's not like Galen Weston doesn't have a history of price gouging. Does has any, everyone forgotten when he was fixing the price of bread? Mm-hmm. So exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just you know when yeah galen weston has uh, a pretty valuable skill he knows how to squeeze customers for every single last dollar they have but i have a feeling that's not the kind of like economic um acumens that the fraser institutes wants you to think of they want you to think of again you know they, they want you to think of ceo as like host of like shark tank and and Ugh. And, you know, Dragon's Den and these shows, but they're like, they're kind of funny and they're interested in your business and they like want to develop your business and they want you to succeed like they've succeeded. And this whole, um, this whole imaginary, you know, self-made uh, malarkey 
that that you know of of the benevolent businessman. It's like it's right yeah. out of the freaking eighties, and you know that's it wasn't it speaks, true. It wasn't true then. It's not true now. Speaks to Musk. Speaks to like yeah. Initially, yeah. there's something there, but really, like it's it's a BS job. And I know Galen Weston isn't stupid. He seems like an intelligent guy. I don't probably want to. I don't know. Take your pick. <laughs> probably the British system, I would imagine. But uh, yeah, because he's yeah, he would be. I think he was born in Ireland. It doesn't matter, but it does. Oh, no, another tax shelter. <laughs> well, it's a colonial story there, right? But that's the one to deviate too much from the theme. But yeah, they'll blame ever. They'll blame inflation. They'll blame the unions. They'll blame the workers. As nobody wants to work. They'll even there was that report about shoplifting. Right? Oh, shoplifting is costing us so much. Right, right. Shoplifting is not that at all. Like I used to. I think I've mentioned this before. One of my first jobs, I was still in school. I worked in a supermarket, which I will not name, but it no longer exists. <laughs> and it was right at the decline of the 80s before the recession. And there's people from my neighborhood whom I knew who had families and they're unemployed because they were clearing out all the factories and they were going to Mexico. True story. And they would take things and I would say nothing. Mm-hmm. I would say nothing because I knew that they needed it. I knew that there was hungry, you know, nothing, nothing to make you deke left mm. and something like that. Right. So when I hear about the Westons and the, you know, the, well, the, like I said, the company I work for is bankrupt now, but it's not my fault that some cans of tuna or whatever <laughs> missing someday 40 years ago or whatever. You mentioned the, the food price report, which is another yeah. one of those things that comes out at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And he had an article in, in uh, the, the Global Mail that was kind of similar to to back this report, but also to say, you know, like, it's kind of like your yours about Rodrigo, that uh, you know, it's not Galen Weston's fault that this is happening. Mm. He did take a couple of shots at the price of things, but it was you know, there there are many many factors, and I mentioned some of them that the the corporate end will blame, but there's climate change and supply chains and and all of that stuff. So prices are high, and interestingly, the the chicken prompted people posting prices from everywhere. Things like stewing beef, things that used to be cheap, things mm. that used to kind of like were an afterthought you would throw out or put out at half price. And I'm speaking from my own experience all those years ago mm. uh, is now really expensive. There's a lot going on, but yes, if you want to have two minutes hate for Gail and Weston, you have my blessing because you know, the grocery oligarchy is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. When you've eight or now nine billion dollars, right? That's mm-hmm. like that with something, food, shelter, these things that are essential, truly essential. There's no way that any one company or person could have that much sway and control. And of course, as I said, it extends to the pharmacy. Try and go to a post office that's standalone anywhere. Yeah. As you know, and as well, I know, because we're still both use the post office regularly. It's like it's in the shoppers, right? So mm-hmm. it's all this is all connected influence, sway, uh, you name it. So, and I don't want to sound like a ranty conspiracy person with my gold microphone. It is definitely not gold. <laughs> well, but that's I, what that's the takeaway from this for me. It's like it goes well beyond just, you know, this uh, one off in the, in the, or she was i don't know (laughs) (laughs) well if willard galen garfield weston had a microphone it would definitely be gold and you were right he was born in ireland but his two alma maters are harvard and columbia oh wow so there's some there's some room oxbridge probably right 
Oh, she's also gonna have a, the Oxbridge person anime. That's the Queen's like Elon Musk. That's huh. a, that's another story. well. <laughs> Pride and McGill. Anyway, um, we're gonna take a quick break and come back with our interview with Tim Gray. You are listening to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And that's currently number 20 on the CFRU chart. The album is called Watten. And if you haven't heard of Asanabe, you will soon enough because uh, my predictions are sometimes shaky, but I think that this artist is going to go intergalactic very soon. The song is called War Cry, mm-hmm. and it's on Ishkade Records. Shaggy probably heard that. I, there are other stations uh, mm-hmm. that have latched on to this artist quite tightly. Including the national broadcaster. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that's one of the ones that they don't play. But what a voice, what a talent. And I'm telling you, Oju Curry all the way in 2023. I'm telling you, it's just, I can't say enough. I should get a music show so we can just play this stuff. <laughs> Great. More Pandemic work. themed album, too. This is straight out of these times. So please check it out. <laughs> all right. Check it out. And uh, we're going to ask you to check out our interview, which is with Tim Gray, who's the executive director of Environmental Defense. Uh, He'll explain a bit at the beginning about what environmental defense is. If you've never heard of them, what they are doing right now is uh, trying to push the Ford government on a number of environmental issues. They have uh, started a uh, request a judicial review of the government's uh, overriding of Hamilton's official plan. Hamilton uh, submitted official an official plan that said they would grow within their borders. And the Ontario government said, no, you're going to build on these sections of the green belt that we are uh, taking protections away. You can't you can't not build within your old borders. So they're getting a judicial review of that. They're trying to push the OPP into investigating the Greenbelt deal to begin with. And they're fighting Highway 413 and a bunch of other environmental stuff. Um, they have a very full plate over at Environmental Defense. And we asked mm-hmm. Tim Gray if he wanted to come by and talk about it. He did. And so uh, this is that interview. We're going to press play on that starting now. All right, Tim Gray, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, to start off with, in case maybe our listeners uh, aren't aware of your organization or maybe only vaguely aware of it because they, they hear about it in passing and in the news and things, uh, can you talk a bit about environmental defense and, and what it is and what you do? Yeah, so environmental defense is a, a national non-for-profit charitable organization. And as the name might lead one to believe, um, we spend our time Uh, defending the environment. And uh, we do this by linking our supporters to decision makers, whether those be uh, political decision makers, elected officials, um, people in in companies, et cetera. And we do that through uh, providing analysis and education to our supporters, to the public, to media uh, in 
effort to defend our environment and ensure that it's protected in a way that uh, protects human health and the overall environment for Canadians. Perfect. So to get into the sort of the meat and potatoes of of what's been happening lately, uh, I remember when in 2018, when the Ford government first came to power and some other things were like tearing up the, the, the cap and trade agreement and, you know, canceling EV chargers stations and, canceling wind power projects and, and things like that. I wonder how you feel looking back at those early days uh, in, in the first four term and in term, and then comparing that to how we are now, ha- have they gotten worse in, in your opinion on the environment or is this kind of like a, a natural escalation in terms of where we were going? Yeah. I mean, I think there's been a reboot in the level of awfulness uh, since the last election in June. Um, you know, there was a, you know, a period during COVID where I think government was distracted with other things necessarily and, you know, wasn't continuing as many of its attacks as it had launched, as you were outlining, you know, at the beginning of their first mandate. Um, you know, I've always felt that, um, you know, it's, I don't think the, the premier has a particular hatred for the environment. He just doesn't care at all. He doesn't think it matters. He doesn't think that it has any links to our long-term prosperity or livability of the region. Um, And of course that's fundamentally flawed analysis, but I think that's what it is. And so, you know, anything that, um, you know, sounds like environment sounds to him like something that he shouldn't care about. Um, And it gets in the way of things. A lot of his uh, friends and constituents he does care about uh, would like to pave over or get rid of, or otherwise push out, push aside because, you know, they see them quite often these big industrial interest groups see these um, uh, protections for the public interest and the environment as impediments to uh, short-term profit-making. So they want them removed and, you know, always had longstanding positions that they would like those uh, uh, environmental protections removed. So that's who he listens to. And, you know, the environment in our future is kind of collateral damage, I think. Hmm. I wonder, have you ever had a chance to come face to face with the premier? You know, I haven't. Um, you know, I don't <laughs> spend a lot of time at Queen's Park uh, with the current government. Um, you know, I probably spent the least amount of time either at Queen's Park or, you know, I've done a lot of work federally uh, with this government of over any government of any political stripe in my 30 year career. You know, it was made pretty clear to uh, us you know, early in the government's mandate that, uh, you know, there wasn't going to be uh, they were going to be listening to things that we had to say um, or, you know, working on issues that we saw as value. Um, I have had, you know, meetings with some cabinet ministers, but nothing with the premier. I'm just curious because you raised something that I, you, you phrased it in a, in a way that I, I, I really connected with, that he doesn't really seem to care about the environment. I'm sure and I'm sure I've heard him say at press conferences, like, I love animals and trees and, and, and things like that. But, you know. Doug Ford doesn't strike you as an, an outdoors person. Um, so you can't even connect with him on that, like that basic level. We all like going to the park or taking a nice walk on, on the lake or something. But in terms of just advocacy efforts, um, that makes like trying to create movement on this issue, especially hard because you're trying to make someone care about something they very clearly don't care about. Yeah, it is hard. And, you know, there's very, uh, this is a trend in Canadian politics overall, but it's been really, you know, ramped up a degree further with the current government is kind of centralized control over policy direction, you know, coming out of the premier's office. So, you know, I think that there's broad disagreement 
on the direction that the government is going uh, within uh, the caucus, you know, the, the broader caucus of the government. Um, I don't think that people are all on side, but they've been whipped into shape. And I think the fact that, uh, you know, a, a, a very strongly anti-environmental agenda pursued during their first term resulted in a majority, you know, large majority government for them on the second go, uh, I think, you know, has kind of silenced any criticism coming from the caucus about, you know, that they're off course. So I don't think they, a lot of them agree personally. And um, I just think that they, um, you know, are just uh, ducking and covering and, uh, you know, hoping for the best. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, that the public will hold the caucus accountable. Um, you know, it's not a legitimate defense to say, oh, well, you know, I didn't make any of the decisions. It was all centralized. You know, people get elected to represent their constituents and, you know, going back to them at the end of four years and saying, yeah, we did a lot of stuff. I didn't agree with any of it, but I did it anyway. Like, that's not going to gonna hold much water, I hope, when they get to the polls next time. We'll see, because it's, uh, you know, the, the agenda uh, since June has been, you know, truly kind of scorched earth. I don't want to ask you to do any sort of armchair psychology or anything like that or or government profiling, but there, there are a lot of ministers, even if they're not cabinet ministers, there are a lot of people in the PC benches who represent ridings that, for example, Highway 413 passes through. And there were so many municipalities that passed motions that said, we don't want this new highway. And to, to, I guess the sort of segue into one of uh, your group's areas of interest in Hamilton um, there are so many Hamilton MPPs in the conservative bench, and then you have this vote, or not vote, but you have um, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing overriding Hamilton's own internal decision to um, develop within its borders, and the government saying, no, you have to develop outside of your borders. We to decree it. So, I mean, given, you know, they really are kind of serving two masters in many cases. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, uh, you know, Hamilton is a, a really clear example of a city that, you know, stepped back and thought about its future and how land use and planning and housing fits, you know, within that vision of the future and said, you know, we really have this uh, incredible asset in, in our city where we have uh, so much underutilized land and buildings downtown near the lake, near transit, near our future LRT, you know, close to shopping and stuff. We really do need to invest there. And we could actually build, you know, a variety of housing types, you know, a bunch of them could actually be affordable for people. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that it makes sense to invest there and not to like bulldoze more farmland especially along the Niagara Escarpment, you know, top of the mountain and the Hamilton, where we have to build more infrastructure like sewers and water and bus routes and none of it makes any sense. So we're not going to do that. We're going to build downtown. And then you have the provincial government just come in and say, well, you know, a bunch of people that we know uh, have bought up farmland, big developers bought farmland outside of the city. And they'd really like to build sprawling subdivisions on it. And we don't care what the cost is to you as the city or your taxpayers or whether it interferes with uh, you know, redeveloping a vibrant urban city. We want sprawl because uh, our friends like sprawl. And uh, that's kind of the end of it from their perspective. And of course, that's why you know, we went to court yesterday, because we think that the way the minister acted was, in fact, uh, you know, just completely unreasonable, uh, didn't mm -hmm. draw on the framing legislation, which the city was planning under, which is provincial legislation, and uh, is demonstrably unreasonable. 
Yes, yeah, so you and uh, you're working with a, a legal group, Eco Justice. Yes, Eco Justice is our, our lawyer, uh, our lawyer acting as our lawyers in the case. And you're asking for a judicial review of the uh, past, the approved official plan. We are, yeah, the one that we're the re- a review of the minister's decision to um, get rid of the the plan passed by the city of Hamilton and, and be replaced with the pro sprawl plan that the uh, the minister put in place. And is is the city of Hamilton as a corporation or or any of the politicians on Hamilton Council are they involved in in this action in any way? Um, they are considering what to do in terms of being involved in the case. They're named, of course, the city, just because from a formal perspective, they have to be named because it was their plan. But um, the timing of the province's uh, you know, overturn of their official plan was right around the municipal election, you may recall. Mm. So their ability to like make a decision about whether to join us at the time within the 30 day period that we had available to make a decision to go forward. They just couldn't do it because uh, there was no council because we were right in the middle of the election. So they are now going to be considering uh, how to engage in the, in the legal action. And we're very much hoping based on the commitments that have been made by, uh, by the new mayor uh, of Hamilton, as well as the majority of councillors, um, you know, to fight what the province is doing tooth and nail means that they will actually, you know, be working very closely with us after they've had a chance to make a decision. For for people who may not know, the new mayor of Hamilton is none other than Andrea Horvath, formerly the official opposition leader. So she may not have, on at least on the surface, too many qualms about going head to head with the Ford government. Um, to get back to the timing of things, though, it was November 4th, I believe, they rendered that decision, which was also the same day they opened the Green Belt or said that they were going to review the Green Belt and essentially open it. But for people who may be thinking to themselves, well, I didn't hear that in the news that day, it's because that was the same day as the province-wide job action that the education workers were taking. And that makes me think, and I, I don't think I've been proven wrong yet, but you know, th- there was some logic behind that in terms of trying trying not to get as much attention as these issues might otherwise warrant. Absolutely. I mean, it was Friday afternoon. It was in the midst of all of the controversy around the use of uh, notwithstanding clause. And, you know, there was lots of uh, uh, competing things going on in the news cycle. So for sure. Um, and in addition, of course, it was the same week that um, massive legislative change around uh, development charges and attacks on conservation authorities and changes to planning rules and who does the planning, all that stuff was being you know, dumped into the legislature at the same time. So kind of a shock and awe approach, I think, to um, you know, changes around how planning and environmental protection are done in Ontario, hoping just to you know, get past it by dumping it all at once, I would guess. Hmm. Um- in terms of one of the other campaigns you're working on, which is asking the OPP to investigate the that deal, the Greenbelt deal, um, the developers buying parcels of land that weren't supposed to be available to development. Um, is there, I, I realized that I think the OPP said they were kind of nibbling at it, or it was reported that the, the OPP was kind of looking at documents. No one from the government has heard back yet in terms of furthering the investigation, I guess. Um, from your end of it, having sort of brought in the complaints, you know, what's, what's the current situation in, uh, to, to your mind? 
Yeah, they're uh, they. I, I've talked to the the people in the anti rackets branch who are who are handling this uh, investigation, and they're in the preliminary stage. So um, I've, uh, I was told that thirteen different complaints had been received. Ours was one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent some time with uh, you know intake officer from the anti rackets division, you know, talking through you know kind of the evidence that's in the public domain, things that we know about what's happened uh, with these uh, land removals from the green belt and, and the fact that uh, it seems pretty clear that, um, you know, a number of the, the landowners, uh, you know, seem to have had a reasonable person would come to the conclusion they had advanced notice right. that, uh, that this was going to happen, but only uh, selected uh, landowners did. So, you know, obviously there's a massive private benefit that can be derived from buying farmland cheap on the greenbelt with no prospect for development and then having it removed and designated for rapid development, you know, backed by the province, uh, you know, with the power of ministers, zoning orders, et cetera. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, being able to spend millions and turn that into billions. So, um, you know, it's huge private benefit and in a number of these properties, uh, a real transfer of public benefit to the private uh, without any uh, identification of options, no notice to the public, just, you know, announcement. So, but then of course, we've seen that both the minister, um, uh, the minister of, of municipal affairs and housing after refusing to answer questions in the legislature about whether or not advance notice was given to some of these developers, you know, followed up the next day that, you know, the premier saying, you know, that no, no one was given any advance notice. So, um, you know, if the premier didn't uh, talk to these people in advance and the, and the minister didn't, then, uh, you know, that needs to be confirmed, I think, through uh, the criminal investigation. And also, um, if it wasn't them, then who, who in government did? Because it doesn't make sense that, that these people didn't know. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, the only way we're going to get to the bottom of this in a, in a, in a, in a reasonable time period is, is for the provincial police to, uh, you know, exercise their ability to launch a more formal investigation and, and use their powers of search warrants and all other things to get the documents. Uh, we have no way of getting them, um, mm-hmm. at least not in any kind of expeditious fashion. We can use freedom of information, but that is frequently stonewalled and takes a long time. So, mm-hmm. um, I think here the the scale of the threat to the public interest and the way that it was conducted really does warrant uh, an investigation by the OPP, and that's why we brought the complaint forward. Outside of sort of criminal investigations, I do wonder if we miss a piece of this. Um, you know, all these issues by you know we have activists. Obviously, we have individuals who are deeply concerned about the environment, putting pressure on the government. But what responsibility do you think we might have of maybe putting some finding some time to put pressure on developers too, and and you know th- they they have a responsibility, but they also have a potential audience that you know granted housing is what it is it it, it you know it, there's there's so much need so it may be wishful thinking to to believe that we could boycott any housing that might be built on on uh, on greenbelt land, but you know should activists be also leaning on developers to say, to, to, to make their feelings known? Well, you know, I think that uh, the development industry overall, 
um, has really crossed the line. And, uh, you know, I hope they all come to regret it, you know, by such a blatant attack on, on the public interest and long-term uh, ecological, economic, and social values in, in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. You know, I know that my uh, patience for like working with them and their lobbyists in any kind of constructive way and, uh, you know, has been, uh, you know, significantly eroded, let's put it that way. And um, <laughs> I think the public uh, is going to be looking for, uh, you know, dramatic uh, legislative change, um, you know, with any new, with any government that would be willing to, uh, to listen. Um, I also do think that, uh, you know, particular developments that are looking to go forward on these Greenbelt lands will run into significant municipal, public, um, stakeholder opposition, uh, you know, legally, uh, you know, reputational capital for the companies involved. Um, you know, we've seen this play out before, you know, the provincial government tried to help, uh, a developer rezone a, a very large, provincially significant coastal wetland in Pickering a couple of years ago. You know, we got involved with the community defending that, and it turned out that the client, you know, for this development was Amazon. Well, you know, mm. as that issue heated up, uh, Amazon didn't want anything to do with building a warehouse in the middle of a provincially significant wetland that everybody in the community was furious about. So, you know, there's uh, there is real risk that. You know, given the you know large number of places that uh, houses can be built, and we all know that the green belt isn't needed to meet housing or land for housing. It's just you know clearly not. There's a huge surplus of land, probably about the size around the size of the city of Vancouver uh, within existing urban boundaries in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. So we don't need the green belt for housing. So mm. given that, um, you know, where are commercial and even residential people likely to be interested in buying uh, you know, places to build their warehouses or, or you know, buying a house if they know that it's in a place that is you know, causing uh, incredible uh, ecological harm. Um, so I think there is a risk to the individual developers, both at a policy level, but also at an individual um, company level as they try and proceed with something that is clearly against public interest. I also think we're talking here about just how messy these planning processes might be because I know at our city council here in Guelph, we've been talking about how we're going to have longer planning meetings because applications are going to kind of come forward. You have to respond to them in a much quicker manner. Um, so that creates longer meetings on in one way, but on the other hand, I can also see even longer, those meetings being made even longer because of the reaction. If, if somebody wants to build the wrong thing in the wrong place and the neighborhood has a really big problem with it and starts to organize you know, you could have eight, nine, 10 hour planning meetings on, you know, two or three controversial applications at a time. And and I mean, that's not a help to local democracy either. It's not. And in fact, I feel, you know, really sorry for uh, municipal politicians in the environment that has been created by this cascading, uh, you know, attack on local autonomy, uh, local rulemaking, environmental protection, ability to work with conservation authority, shortening timelines, reducing funds available to build critical infrastructure. It's a nightmare for uh, municipal governments. And, uh, you know, I really kind of wonder, you know, where this is going to track over the next few months as people really come to terms with massive tax increases or massive service and infrastructure cuts that they're going to have to make, as well as trying to like, you know, deal with some of these things like that have been put in place to expedite development for developers without proper review. 
um, <clears throat> you know, I would not be surprised to see uh, some municipalities or maybe them working together and just saying, okay, tools down, you know, provincial government, you know, you, you want to, uh, you know, basically take over and thwart our ability to plan properly. Here you go. It's yours. Mm. You know, you wrecked it, you own it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, cause it's, I really think that in a lot of cases doing any uh, kind of uh, planning that is consistent, with, uh, you know, the Planning Act, Provincial Policy Statement, all those things, uh, it's going to be impossible uh, for municipalities to legally comply with it. Now, we may see another round of, of just gutting all of that legislation and kind of a return to, uh, you know, uh, if you own the land, you can do whatever you want kind of approach to planning from like 1948 mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, sustaining that politically will be a challenge for the province to, to you know, turn just turn the developers amok on society in Southern Ontario. I think, uh, I mean, it might hold for a while, but, uh, you know, again, you know, careful what you wish for developers because the public's not going away. And uh, eventually, you know, uh, we will be back and uh, we will put you back in a cage and keep you there for the next 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of answered what I was going to make my last question, which was, you know, it, have we sort of seen the worst or, is there stu still room for it to get worse that is there still room for the government uh, the ontario government to sort of muddy the waters even more and make it even harder for municipalities to roll with these like quick succeed successful successive changes yeah i mean i think um you know it could get worse in terms of you know getting rid of any uh any intention to try and plan sustainably build density inside of cities focus on transit and they could like completely blow that out of the water. I mean, they have ultimate ultimate authority as the province to completely destroy the, the planning system in, in, in Ontario because it's a, you know, it's a creature of the provincial government. Mm. So um, yeah, they could make it worse. It's already pretty bad. Um, I think it'll be up to um, municipalities to decide whether or not they can like persist to, to carry out their functions in such a, a dysfunctional environment and whether they want to do that or not. Well, I feel like I should uh, end end this by saying to be continued but uh for today tim gray <laughs> thanks for all your uh, insights appreciate it thanks for having me okay once again that was tim gray from environmental defense and just quick correction i did uh imply that earlier that elon musk had gone to mcgill he actually went to queens <laughs> uh so i deeply apologize i did not mean to besmirch the good name of mcgill university <laughs> Or Queens or any Canadian university. <laughs> well, to be well, he lose did, our license, man. Yeah, <laughs> he, he did. Yeah, he did eventually leave Queens and transfer to the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School, which was also the alma mater of Donald Trump. So it's all Whoa. connected. Yeah. Did he finish? That's the question. Probably not. Did right he now. finish? Yes, he got his BA in physics at Wharton and. Uh, at U, at U of Penn and as well as his degree in economics at the Wharton School. Mm. So there you go. The more you know. Um, you're going to have to learn some more stuff on your own now because that's the end of this week's show. We <laughs> hope you liked it. You can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're at Open Sources Newswire on Facebook and OS underscore Twitter on uh, OS underscore Guelph on Twitter. I uh, got ahead of myself there. But uh, if you'd like to listen to the show again, you can download it from our website every Monday. You can get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app. 
at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson. And you can check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And if you're on the FM right now, stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground. We'll probably hear Asanabe again. <laughs> yes. <Maybe. laughs> yes, more than likely. Every show needs to play a song. <laughs> and then when you play all the songs, start again. Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return, of course, next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources. And we will see you then.